Anyone will tell you a car has a spirit of its own. Maybe not in the literal sense, but definitely figuratively. They have different vibes about them, different behaviors, oddities, and additions that make them distinct to each make and model, so that no two versions are ever really the same. It's why you see such varied prices on the secondary market, because those differences cause people to value their cars in different ways. But what happens when the figurative becomes literal? What happens when a car takes on a life of its own, beyond what exists in the gears and machinery of its composition? For this RCR story, we're going to look at some cars that have been noted throughout history to be haunted or cursed. And honestly, I should have done a little more research before making this list because just about any other list on the internet about cursed or haunted cars are probably going to have these cars on them. But hey, you know, stuff happens. Oh, and on the subject of cursed cars, before I start, in the description I have a link to my RCR story on James Dean's cursed Porsche 550 Spider. It was one of the earliest RCR stories that I did, and that partially got me really interested in making more of these videos. So if you enjoy these videos, definitely go check it out. But for now, let's look at a handful of some of the most cursed, haunted, or otherwise damned cars to ever exist. Would this have been a great video for Halloween? <laughs> Probably, but I work slow. Is it fact? Is it fiction? Is it urban legends? Who knows? So let's throw some sand into the campfire and take a look at some really spooky cars. Not to be confused with my dream car now and for all time, the incomparable AMC Eagle, the Golden Eagle was the nickname given to a 1964 Dodge 330 limited edition that was at least as deadly as a Pinto in the 1970s, but without Ralph Nader waging a singular campaign against it. Wait, he was a waging campaign against the Pinto, right? And realistically, he probably should have, since this car has a lot of blood on its wheels, or whatever the automotive equivalent of hands are. You see, the Golden Eagle was supposedly a police car, initially when it was put into service, based out of the town of Old Orchard Beach, Maine. There was nothing immediately amiss about the car when it was put into service. In fact, it seemed downright ordinary. Because, for all the subsequent talk of this being a deadly car, its first three victims didn't actually die as a result of driving it. At least not directly. You see, the car first acquired its cursed reputation because, during its time as part of the police force, it changed hands three separate times. Why? Well, the first guy to whom the car was assigned allegedly died at his own hands, but not before killing his entire family in a gruesome and unthinkable tragedy. The second guy who drove it? Believe it or not, he too would die by his own hand but not before killing his entire family in a nightmarish act that could hardly be reckoned with by the community, all the more so because of the previous officer's actions. As for the third man, well, okay, look, he died by his own hand, but not before murdering his entire family, because apparently that's just what happens when you drive a Dodge for too long. 
And I know, this is exceptionally hard to believe, which is why I probably should have led with the fact that many of these stories come directly from its most recent owner, a self-avowed witch by the name of Wendy Allen. Since I struggled to find any sources to back up any of this, not even a newspaper clipping about three police officers taking out their entire families. So naturally, take it with a grain of salt, or however much salt you need to take as long as your blood pressure is doing okay. Of course, the story of the Golden Eagle, whether true or not, only expands from here, as the legend of the curse grows. Because you could call a car deadly if it killed you while you were driving it, or even while you were sitting in it. But that was rarely the case for the Golden Eagle. Many of the people to be affected by the curse supposedly died by other means, yet it's no less spooky for how each person's gruesome demise is linked only by their connection to this dodge. In the decades that followed the Old Orchard Beach murders, congregants of the local church tried to send the message that the car wasn't welcome in their little slice of idyllic America. And they did this by vandalizing the car. Although what the vandalization actually entailed, I couldn't find, but it's theorized that it may have been an attempt at a sort of exorcism, since the churchgoers allegedly believed the car was possessed by some kind of demon. And if true, it would kind of explain what ended up happening to them. In short, some of the vandals were killed in collisions with 18-wheelers, with rumors of decapitations being among the manners of death in those accidents. Another vandal was struck by lightning. And now, for her part, Wendy Allen believed the curse was brought on by the people trying to prevent it, and could perhaps be retaliation for the churchgoers targeting her for her occult lifestyle. That's one theory, anyway. Over the years, there would be rumors of other gruesome demises, such as accounts of two children being struck by a car and being sent careening through the air before landing on the Golden Eagle and dying on its cursed hood, or roof, depending on the story. Another rumor tells of a teenager who was dared into touching the car. He would lay hands on the vehicle only to later end up committing the same heinous act as the three police officers with whom the curse originated, except with the added touch of burning down his entire house after the fact. The car was on such a rampage that concerned citizens supposedly went full chop shop on the 64 Dodge, taking the car apart and hiding the pieces like the car was the god Osiris or something. But Wendy Allen fought back. She searched high and low, and with the help of the internet, she was eventually able to get most of the car back, at least enough of the car to make it drivable again, which would come back to haunt her, no pun intended, I swear, as Alan herself would claim that the doors would throw themselves open at speed, among other malfunctions like seat belts mysteriously coming undone or the steering wheel locking in place while driving, all things that would seem like supernatural sabotage to the superstitious, but comes across a lot more like the effects of driving a piecemeal classic car in only semi-drivable condition. But regardless, doors flinging open on the highway is just about the only bad thing to really happen to Wendy Allen with regards to this car. Perhaps it's the car respecting the so-called Sea Witch of Old Orchard Beach, or maybe the car mellowed out with age. Or maybe this is all an urban legend, who knows. For now, in the interest of public safety, Allen has kept the car garaged. And thus ends the tale, for now, of the Golden Eagle. Okay, so imagine this. You're walking along the road at night, coming to a bridge in the aftermath of fresh rain. The cold bites at your neck. 
you pull the collar of your jacket tight against you. The moon is obscured by clouds and made crooked in the reflection of the puddles beneath your feet. A black car pulls up, windows rolled down. A man sits in the driver's seat, barely visible, a seated shadow, voice emitting a dry smoker's rasp. Do you have the time? And here, you're at a fundamental crossroad in your life, where the next answer will decide whether you live to see the other side of the bridge, or if you're just yet another victim in the terrifying legend of the Black Volga. This particular urban legend is of European extraction, centered on a black GAZ M21 Volga, a car built in the Soviet Union between 1956 and 1970 by the Gorky Automobile Factory. Although some reports say it may have been a GAZ 24 Volga, which was built from 1970 to 1985. The difference would mostly have been the more modern, western-adjacent styling of the latter car, but with a reinforced unibody construction and a stronger suspension to endure harsh weather conditions. Basically, the type of car that will give you the freedom to be the devil incarnate year-round. You see, this was a car used for abductions, purposeful abductions, as the driver of the Black Volga was supposedly on the hunt for blood. As the legend goes, the car would roll up alongside young, unsuspecting victims, snatch them, and take them away to be drained of their blood. For what reason? Well, as it turns out, some wealthy people with leukemia seemed to believe that young blood would cure them of the disease. In some versions, these were wealthy Westerners, and in others, they were the bourgeois class of the USSR. Another version of the legend would claim it wasn't the blood the wealthy were after, but organs. Ugh. Either way, if the Black Volga got you, that was pretty much all she wrote. This legend originated around the 60s or 70s, with various cars as the basis of the legend. I mean, I've read BMWs being the basis for the Black Volga legend, but at least with this one, what makes it all so unsettling is that, for the time, there were a lot of Black Volgas on the road, which would be certain to put any superstitious citizens on edge. There were all sorts of theories as to who was driving the mysterious car, with some speculating the driver to be a KGB agent, while others claimed it could be a member of the clergy. Some people even speculated vampires. I mean, of course, with the whole blood angle. Hell, I even read that some believed the driver could have been the devil himself. Which brings us back to the start of this story. So you're walking along the road when the Black Volga sidles up alongside you. The driver asks for the time, and you have a choice to make. This take on the Black Volga legend has the demonic driver, sometimes with a 666 in the license plate, and horns in place of wing mirrors, asking the person for the time. If you gave the time, you were either killed as you came up to the car to give your answer, or you were essentially marked, with the time you gave suddenly becoming the time you would die the next day. And if you were marked, there was essentially no way out of the curse. Like that one episode of Doctor Who with the raven, but at least that raven was transferable one time. Not so much with the Black Volga. But if you knew a certain phrase, you could avoid ever falling to the curse of the Black Volga in the first place. When the driver asks for the time, one simply had to answer, It is God's time at which point the car would disappear. 
I mean, I also suppose you could just ignore the driver altogether, but then we wouldn't have a story except about a wise ass who beat a curse through common sense. Over the decades, versions of this legend have been passed across Russia, Hungary, Poland, Greece, Mongolia, and Ukraine, to name a few. In the Ukrainian version I read, two girls had supposedly been approached by the car, at which point they were pulled into the car and disappeared entirely, with no evidence of the girls ever having been inside the car. A passerby who witnessed the incident approached the car and was met with a bright flash, waking up a couple days later with a terrible headache and no memory of anything that happened in the days since. Much like with the Golden Eagle, it's up to the viewer or listener to decide just how much to believe, which I know is an enormous cop-out, but I will say I've watched enough episodes of Unsolved Mysteries to know this isn't entirely implausible, in some form or fashion. I just would imagine it would have a more horrifyingly grounded explanation, which makes it no less terrifying, really. The next entry is a history lesson on wheels. The 1910 Graf and Stift double Phaeton, engine number 287 and license plate AIII-118. Keep that in the back of your mind. It was the car used to transport Archduke Franz Ferdinand across Sarajevo on the fateful day of June 28, 1914. This would be the day the Archduke would be assassinated, an act that would kickstart the Great War, the emperor of all global conflicts up to that point, World War I. But more than that, you could almost blame the car itself for Ferdinand's assassination. You see, the Archduke and his wife had narrowly avoided a grenade tossed towards the car earlier in the day. The resulting explosion injured other passers-by, prompting the Archduke to demand to visit the injured later in the day. It was on the way to visit the injured parties that the car stalled, leaving the Archduke a sitting duck for an assassin from the group Young Bosnia, an offshoot of unification or death, otherwise known as the Black Hand, a secret military group. Regardless of the reason for the killing, this young assassin had caught a lucky break to finish the job, largely because of the double phaeton stalling as the driver attempted to turn around on a side street. Had the car not stalled, who's to say if the assassin would have had the opportunity in the first place? However, the car's failure didn't just kickstart a world war, it also began a long path of destruction wrought through the number of people who owned the car in the years ahead. Across 15 owners, the car was rumored to have killed 13 people. The person who owned the car after Ferdinand's assassination, the person who owned the car after Ferdinand's assassination was an Austrian general who would go clinically insane. He was subsequently committed to an asylum where he would spend the rest of his days. The German military officer who owned it after him only held the car for nine days before ending up in a bizarre accident that would claim three lives. You see, the officer had been driving casually when he encountered two pedestrians in the road. In an attempt to avoid a collision, he swerved and struck a tree, but somehow not before hitting the two pedestrians anyway. The crash killed the officer and the pedestrians he was trying to save. 
a Yugoslavian governor who'd come into possession of the car would go on to have four different accidents, culminating in a crash that would cause him to lose an arm. The following owner flipped the car, but not the profitable kind of flipping. No, he put the car on its roof and crushed himself in the process, all for a car he didn't even really want. As legend has it, the man bought the car on a dare. And this kind of goes back to the Golden Eagle, and the teenager dared into touching it. Stop daring people to do things that are related to cars, it's not gonna end well. I don't know how to explain this any more clearly, but whether it's an urban legend or not, I cannot think of a time where daring someone to do something related to a car, whether it's drive like a maniac or touch a car that doesn't belong to them, I, I just can't imagine a scenario where it ends any other way but badly. Unless it's like the opening to a Brazzers video or something. But arguably the biggest tragedy to which the car could be linked was the tale of a wedding party meeting a grim fate. The Romanian man who'd purchased the car was driving five of his friends to a wedding. En route, and with seemingly no explanation, the car lost control. While at least one of the occupants would survive, the others would not be so lucky leaving behind an unspeakable tableau for the authorities to discover. Now, I can't take credit for the following observation, as from what I could find it was discovered by, I believe, Mike Dash, a writer for the Charles Fort Institute. But he discovered that the license plate of the car, which was then sitting in a museum in Vienna where it couldn't get any other drivers killed, had a surprisingly distinct set of characters. If you'll remember from earlier, the license plate was AIII-118. The theory is that the car not only kick-started the First World War, but predicted its end as well. A for Armistice Day, and the remaining characters symbolizing 11-11-18, the date of the war's end. Perhaps the car is a representation of the grim toll of war, its inherent cost, and its terrible imposition on innocent people alike. At least I guess that's how we English majors would probably look at it. I'm telling you, once literary theory has its hooks in you, you're not really going anywhere. Public transportation. We've all used it. Some of us still use it. Not everyone is fortunate enough to have a car of their own. And when we need public transportation, man, we really need it. We depend on it. Which is why it can feel like a betrayal when it doesn't come through for us. But okay, so the bus didn't get me to my dental hygienist on time. Not the end of the world. At least the bus was a real bus. But the same cannot be said of the number seven bus. In West London, in the Ladbroke Grove area of Cambridge Gardens, eyewitnesses have claimed to have seen the phantom of a red double-decker bus, a ghostly apparition that sometimes has a driver and sometimes appears to operate without anyone behind the wheel, like some kind of ghostly Tesla. This all began in 1934, when a driver was making their way down a long and lonely road when, all of a sudden, as if out of the mist, a bus appeared. There was no indication of a bus having been in the road ahead, nor was there any forewarning in the form of headlights or horns. The bus simply appeared to materialize out of thin air. Naturally, the driver of the car swerved to avoid hitting the bus, and they succeeded. Unfortunately, they ended up hitting a pillar instead. The driver died on impact, 
and a bystander who witnessed the entire thing claimed that the bus disappeared just as suddenly as it had arrived. On another occasion, a man who encountered the bus told North Kensington police that the headlights of the bus were shining and both floors of the double-decker were lit. Yet there was no body inside, neither passengers nor driver. Like the first victim, he swerved and ended up on the sidewalk, smashing into a fence. While he was unharmed, he also had no way to prove that the number 7 bus had truly run him off the road. For all anyone knew, he could have been dozing off behind the wheel and gotten spooked by something his mind had conjured up. Maybe he was drunk. Maybe he was looking for any sort of explanation to get out of trouble with the authorities. I don't really know. At the very least, it's easy for me to believe that he believed what he saw, irrespective of whether or not it actually happened, which counts for just as much in some cases. Over time, more and more people were involved in accidents that they attributed to the mysterious phantom bus. Normally, this would hardly be worthy of police involvement, but regardless of whether or not the drivers saw a phantom bus or not, some of these accidents resulted in fatalities, which decidedly is worth a look from law enforcement. And so the story goes, the police would interrogate the witnesses directly, rounding up those who claimed to have seen the ghost bus in order to get their independent accounts. The details mostly lined up. It was a red bus with number 7 livery, with no driver or passengers, that would mysteriously appear and then vanish just as suddenly. One other detail also stood out. The bus tended to show up at the same time each night, appearing at 1.15 a.m., before disappearing into the vaporous evening air. There wasn't really a whole lot for the police to do. I mean, there wasn't any physical evidence, and it's not like the accidents occurred as a result of colliding with the bus. People were just scared into swerving, and that was that. Really, the only thing anyone could do was improve the road on which the bus most frequently appeared. And so the intersection in Cambridge Garden was made wider, and some issues with the road were fixed and repaired. And sure enough, the number 7 bus appeared less and less frequently until there weren't really any reports left at all. Now, not that that's what these people were doing, but it does make me wonder, as a Pennsylvanian, if I could get PennDOT to fix some of these roads near my apartment by claiming to have been chased off the road by a haunted bus. <sighs> yeah, probably not. And so we come to our final haunted car, as we travel to Cape Town, South Africa for the tale of a Renault that felt a bit froggy one day in November 2004. You see, it all started with a man by the name of Ian Shidakat, who was roused one morning by the sound of a Renault Megane possibly being stolen from the guest house he owned. But what he ended up with was a mystery that required the involvement of the automaker themselves. As the story goes, Ian Shedekot heard the car and would later tell reporters that the car was giving off a, quote, type of roaring sound and gave two powerful leaps backwards before it was stopped by a hibiscus tree, end quote. The car had jumped back. Not only that, it had jumped backwards up an incline. Now, it would be one thing if Mr. Shedekot had been the only one to witness this, but he wasn't. Not only did his family members and guests witness it, two police officers called to the scene also witnessed the jumping car when it came back to life in their presence. That's nine people in total. 
Now, it's creepy enough that the car did this with no driver, but what really threw everyone for a loop was discovering that the car wasn't even turned on. There were no keys in the ignition, and the parking brake was fully engaged. It was as if the car had come to life on its own, possessed of a spirit that demanded... what? Jumping, I guess? Naturally, skeptics abounded. One of Renault's technical coordinators in Cape Town told South Africa's News 24 that such an event was unlikely to occur. Quote, Where did the combustion come from if the car was not switched on? I cannot believe it. It is quite scary. End quote. A service advisor from Cape Town Renault would straight up discount the story to News 24, essentially stating the incident was impossible since a car can't jump if it's off. This is echoed by a regional manager for Renault, who asked News 24 if they were sure the people who witnessed the jumping car hadn't all been drinking tequila beforehand. For his part, a local mechanic would offer an explanation that would at least try to acknowledge the possibility that something had happened here. He is stated as having told News 24, quote, Maybe there were ghosts. End quote. When the incident made news back in 2004, the Shitakat family began receiving inquiries from interested parties offering up their own theories, such as one caller suggesting that maybe there was a 666 on the license plate of the Renault. You know, just like the Black Volga. Another call came from an American exorcist who offered to travel to South Africa and remove, quote, the demon that made the car jump, end quote. Now, from what I could find, the Shitakat family didn't even own the car in question. It was a rental by their two German tenants in the guest house. The car rental company decided to investigate on their own, and no real explanation was forthcoming in the immediate aftermath. For what it's worth, who's to say it wasn't ghosts? We can't know for certain that the car wasn't possessed. Oh, wait, you mean there's an answer? Really? Yes. As it turns out, Renault South Africa was eventually able to get the car back and conduct an internal investigation. And they would publish their findings just under a month later, from what I could tell. The explanation? A faulty starter cable. Yes, it appears that the Renault Megane's starter jumped to life, pun intended this time, due to a rusty starter cable causing short circuits. Because the cable ran down to the battery supply relay box, the short circuits would occur periodically, sort of in intervals, resulting in the car jumping more than just once. That's how not only Ian Chitakot was able to witness it, but how his family and the tenants and the police were able to witness it, because this car was jumping multiple times. As for how it seemed to be jumping backwards, Renault explained that this was a result of the car being parked in reverse. Either way, Renault made a point of stressing that it was rust, and not the product itself, that caused the bizarre phenomenon. Renault was essentially saying, hey, this one is not on us. It's completely the conditions of the area, which basically just tells me this car wouldn't have had a prayer in Pennsylvania. But I'm not entirely sure if I buy the rusty starter explanation. Of course, that's just me being superstitious for no real reason. I, I suppose it's as plausible a rationale as any other. I couldn't find what happened to the car after, but I can only imagine it isn't in the rental rotation anymore these days. At least I certainly hope it wouldn't be, considering it's been 18 years. I'm all for the used car market strengthening worldwide, but that'd be a bit much.
I mean, could you imagine if anything happened to the battery and someone tried to give you a jump? Nope. I'm all set here. Got all the jumps I need with this bad boy. <laughs> That's terrible. Terrible. Ultimately, whether a car is haunted or not is immaterial to how it, at least for a time, shapes and transforms the lives around it. Obviously, this isn't as meaningful or poignant when we're talking about something that potentially ends lives, too. Whether it's a curse or an accident of fate, who knows? But then, a lot of these stories are up to individual interpretation, since I can't find hard records for a lot of this. But I simply thought it'd be an interesting bit of automotive apocrypha, if nothing else, and a, and a deviation from our usual norm that I thought you guys might enjoy. Cars have spirits we imbue them with on our own. Do they have spirits beyond that? Maybe. Or at the very least, maybe we can see a reflection of our own history in the details. Thank you so much for listening to this RCR story. It will be going up eventually, I want to say in about two weeks, on our podcast feed so that you can listen to this uh, wherever you go, whether on the drive or in the gym. Uh, and yeah, the next RCR story, I'm aiming for Christmas. I don't know if I'm going to hit that date. I want it to be this year's Christmas special. People who watch the RCR podcast where I announce the next RCR story, which you can find over on a uh, regular and Roman, our second channel, know what the subject is going to be about, but I've just been sort of sidetracked editing this because it was originally a second channel video that I bumped up to being a main channel video because I really didn't want uh, the sob video to just be the only RCR story that I did for the year. And I felt like this is a way to get another one in there and hopefully a third with the video that I hope is coming out next month um, or by Christmas, depending on when this actually drops. So uh, keep an eye out for that. And I really hope that you enjoyed this. If you did, you know, hit like, subscribe, uh, share this with people and um, stick around for more of this good stuff. And if you didn't enjoy it, hey, that's all right too. We can still be friends. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. And thank you for sticking around. And thank you for supporting regular car reviews. Have a great week. Have a great day. Have a great holiday, everyone. Take care.